six championships in eight years. We were the greatest team ever. What time is that? I'm going to ridicule you until you get on the same level with me. You're making a free run of me. It was his team. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. What's up, everybody? It's Free Association on the Sportsnet Podcast Network. I'm J.D. Bunkus, joined by Donovan Bennett, still corresponding, I'm guessing, from a closet somewhere in his home. It's my office. <laughs> How many shoes are in that closet? I feel like a lot. Like, have you had to clear out shoes from that closet to make room for your space? Zero shoes are in the closet. Zero shoes? Yeah, just a, a clothing closet. So I picture you like having, you ever see Breaking Bad? You know how they have the money in all of the storage lockers? I have not seen Breaking Bad. Great show. You, uh, it's right there, Netflix. You know, Maybe you finished Last Dance, you dive into some Breaking Bad. But they end up accumulating so much money that they just have to store it in storage lockers, like the ones from that old show Storage Wars. I just assume that you have multiple storage lockers with shoes. True or false? uh false i don't have that many shoes like Faisal's much more than i do i think daniel michaud has more than i do my shoe game is not at that level i have a couple pairs that i like but i'm not uh i'm not a collector if you will all i know is that you once dropped off a bag of shoes at my desk you like you had a, a lot of shoes a lot more than me uh, I well, because I give them away, which is why I don't have a lot. I am blessed because people give them to me uh, for no charge. Thank you very much. Uh, companies that I cannot name on this Ooh. podcast, but I give them away. Thus, I don't keep many. Bro, we've gone over this a billion times. There are many reasons that we can point to or many pieces of evidence that are like, this guy is much more important in the company, but the, the free shoes... Like the free shoes is very, very high on the list. So yeah, we just got through episodes five and six of The Last Dance. Um, there was a tweet that LeBron James put out that I just wanted to touch on quickly before we dive in. And it's just this. So quote, saw some reports about execs and agents wanting to cancel the season, question mark. That's absolutely not true. Nobody I know is saying anything like that. As soon as it's safe, we would like to finish our season. I'm ready and our team is ready Nobody should be canceling anything, end quote. Plain and simple, how do you think LeBron James is watching the conversations that are happening right now? And do you think that he feels a little bit more pressure to try and get back this season, considering that there has been this huge debate constantly that's been happening again between him and MJ, and it feels like the world is now starting to come to some consensus that it's Michael and this could be a year where LeBron's up there in age that I don't want to call it his last dance, but that we could be looking at the last like great post prime version of LeBron James just by his age. I mean, he understands arithmetic and he, before this talk happened, understood that he had less championships than Jordan and would need to win more to get in that conversation. And there are some people who still say, well, Kobe has more. So Kobe is ahead of LeBron, though that segment of the population is small. But I don't think the doc is changing this. LeBron James' comments on this have changed as the public sentiment has changed. He said he would not play in front of no fans. He laughed at that thought. Then he had to walk that back. Now it's coming out that... There are some teams who are like, why are we going to jeopardize two seasons? Why don't we just say this is a wrap and move to 
the next season. Yes, surely no one around LeBron is saying that because people around LeBron are invested on this season happening. They're his agency, number one, the Lakers as a franchise who are trying to to win a championship. But Steve Kerr has publicly said, yeah, we are acting as if this season is over because why wouldn't they? Why would they care to come back and play a couple meaningless basketball games? So just because LeBron hasn't heard that there are organizations who feel like the season is over doesn't mean it's not true. You think the Minnesota Timberwolves want to make the phone call? Hey, Cat. Yeah, no, you're grieving. Guess what? We need you to uh, get on a plane and uh, go to Epcot Center because uh, we're going to be playing there for a month. Or, uh, we've got a we've got a suite for you in the Win in uh, Vegas because we're going to be playing some meaningless basketball. There's no chance. I certainly feel like there's a lot of people and teams and agents who like LeBron are trying to salvage whatever they can. But I think there's a bunch who are like, yeah, let's just punt on this season and regroup. And I don't think the doc necessarily has much to do with it. I mean, he on Instagram and on Twitter has been one of the most enthusiastic consumers of the doc. I think that dynamic in terms of who is the GOAT, that's something that he's had to navigate forever. It hasn't changed in the last month. Yeah, I'm not particularly interested in the LeBron versus MJ debate. I just... I think that a lot of it is what era you grew up in. Um, everyone has their personal opinion on it. And I just, I don't think that it's ever anything that we can break down, but I do think LeBron cares about it. I do think that he's mentioned it over and over and over again. Like he's said that he's only chasing one guy and he's brought it up on, on his show, how he thinks he's the greatest basketball player who ever lived that's the way he feels about it. And I don't really fault him for it. Like, I don't think he needs to be, he's really, really good. And he's got an excellent case and there's all kinds of different pieces that, you know, each camp will always use. But I will say that there's one little tiny part of me when I think about this, where I actually feel a little bit of empathy towards LeBron James because, and and this is why I think Michael Jordan recognizes that LeBron is his greatest challenger in terms of that title is that Michael Jordan seems to have always had this real affinity for Kobe Bryant. Like he saw Kobe Bryant as an equal to him, a peer to him, someone that he saw himself in. And with LeBron, there's always been this little bit of air of their adversaries in some way, that LeBron looks up to Jordan, LeBron loves Jordan, that when he went in there and he plays against Charlotte in the playoffs with the Miami Heat, and he's dunking and he's staring and he's looking at Michael, that he wants to be acknowledged in some way. And it does feel like... Yeah, if we go this entire documentary and there's no mention of James or that LeBron or that Michael never says it about him and that there's a lot of reports that what, you know, inspired Michael Jordan to finally have this documentary made was LeBron's title in Cleveland, that it always does feel a little bit like Michael is the guy that won't ever truly acknowledge the the greatness of LeBron James and say, this guy is my equal and I see myself in him and he is the flag bearer. He is the standard bearer. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that's there for me. So I think that coming off of a documentary series like this, LeBron still having this incredible season and having the ability to step back out on the court and try and reclaim the summer by having his version of Space Jam right after Michael and trying to win an NBA title in what, I'll just say it, I think this is his best chance. He's gotten a bit of rest right now. He gets to come back. It's him and Anthony Davis and those two guys still in LeBron's prime I would say that they are still the title favorites. If not, they're still in that group of three teams. Who knows what the future brings 
for him if he slows down a step or if the season is delayed and it you know it's starting to get into when he's 36 years old he's a guy who's played over like almost 200 more regular season games than Michael Jordan at this point you just have to wonder when the body might start to wear down that I do think there's a part of LeBron James that would like to reclaim the summer that's all yeah I think certainly he does but I mean the fact that Jordan chosen son to pass on the torch was Kobe and not LeBron I mean Jordan played against Kobe in a way that he never did LeBron. But also, I think it's more of the fact that Jordan doesn't really think anyone is nearly as great as him. The difference is when Jordan thought he was really great and worth following, Kobe Bryant was like, yeah, I agree. You're really great and worth following. And I think what Jordan loved was the fact that Kobe Bryant loved Jordan so much that he was willing to patent his entire life, never mind his game after him, walk like him, chew gum like him, bend over and hold his shorts like him. And so I I, I, I think what, what Jordan loves is the fact that he is receiving the praise from Kobe that he really wants from everyone all of the time. And my macro takeaway from this entire series is... 7 million people in the United States, another couple million in Canada the next couple days um, with Netflix seeing their subscriptions jump uh, at this point of the year to twice as much as they thought it would in the COVID period. All of these people are getting around and huddling around to watch Michael Jordan air out everybody he hates. Mm -hmm. Isaiah Thomas, ugh, peace. Clyde Drexler, innocent bystander. Too bad. Some people said that you might be as good as Jordan. Tony Kukoc, you had no idea what was going on. You're in a war-torn country. Too bad. Jerry Christ liked you. Dan Marley, evidently, Kraus, for some reason, thought you were a good defender when you were known to be a good three-point shooter. What happens? Jordan's going to average, average 41 points on you in the finals. The highest point total ever. Charles Barkley, good friend of Jordan. Dream Team teammate. What did you do? You had the audacity to win the MVP when we were tired of giving to Jordan. Guess what? Your only chance at a ring? Eviscerated by Michael Jordan. We are getting together, and I'm sure there's like four people that I've forgotten, including Jordan's own brother. Mm-hmm. We were getting together to watch Michael Jordan basically just unearth his grievances with the basketball world. That That's the, the part of the psyche for me. And you hear it in him talking about Kobe in real time, that Laker boy. Yeah, Ball was on his team, way. the only way he would get the ball is if he rebounded it, mm-hmm. if he took four shots in a row. The admiration came over time when Kobe was, you know, his lapdog, for, for, for lack of a better term. And then, you know, as we've heard in Kobe's memorial ceremonies when Jordan talks about him as his younger brother, and Kobe, even before he passes, refers to Jordan as his bigger b- brother at the beginning of episode five, which was a great producer uh, choice. It's over time Kobe earns Jordan's respect because he's showing him so much praise and affirmation. But this whole series, including his own teammates, Horace Grant, who we called a snitch, Scottie Pippen, who we called selfish, it's basically saying, unless you're Phil Jackson, and even to start, I didn't like Phil Jackson, but I have a bone to pick with a bunch of people, and here's why. Yeah, um, I loved the opening scene with Little Laker Boy. (laughs) I think that was actually... That was almost the the greatest sign of respect from the entire thing. That Jordan was openly talking about Kobe before the game 
and already viewed Kobe as, as a challenger to him and that he did want to go out there and he did want to play one-on-one versus him. And it was strange. What were your feelings just watching Kobe posthumously talk on the documentary? Because I felt it was very, very odd for me to, to experience that. I loved the footage. I enjoyed listening to Kobe Bryant speak. I felt a little cold watching it. Yeah, I, as I said, I loved the choice to start that episode that way that was actually kobe um before he gave an sp speech uh to honor bill russell so that was early in the day from his office in a thousand oaks so you get the sense that he was thinking about legacy and greatness you know in his mind and, and it, was, it was just very kobe kobe even in giving jordan a compliment finds a way to give himself a compliment when he says when people come up to me and say oh you could beat jordan one-on-one i say dude yeah i don't have the five championships without mike teaching me everything i have i get from him nobody says that no i mean i'm sure there are lakers fans who say that like some kobe stands who are lakers fans (laughs) yeah it's kobe's friends who say that to him the general population is not constantly having this kobe or jordan debate because in a way kobe was this facsimile of jordan but you can't really compare them he's just the newer model of the same car I thought it was peak Kobe that in talking about Jordan, he ended up talking about Kobe. Yeah. I love too that those two guys measure themselves by, you know, who is the greater one-on-one player like that at the time Jordan's talking about going one-on-one and that's still something in basketball, right? That we all acknowledge that LeBron James is this incredible team player and he's got this dynamic and that Jordan's this great defender, but he, you know, maybe is a little bit even underrated sometimes as a playmaker. Like people talk as though the time he passed to John Paxson is the first time he ever passed the basketball. And I just always think it's great that they, that it always comes down to that. Like who would win one-on-one? Who would win one-on-one? It's like not who was the greater basketball player in the actual game, but who, like that just, that's just some alpha stuff where who would win one-on-one. I think the greats believe that they can will their team to victory. So ultimately, mm-hmm whatever team wins is the guy who wins one-on-one. When you look at the 93 season, when Jordan's talking about being you know, upset that Charles won MVP, so he's like, okay, I'm going to take this, this being the NBA Finals, and naturally the Finals MVP. Every single round of, of that 93 playoff run, Jordan went through a player who was top 10 in MVP voting. He went through Dominique Wilkins in the first round, uh, who finished fifth. He then went through Brad Doherty and Mark Price on the same team who were 10th and 8th in voting. Then Patrick Ewing, who was fourth. And then obviously Barkley in the finals, who was fifth. So he was literally a prize fighter. And he looked at it as my team may win, your team may win, but ultimately us great players are going to decide it. So I, my will is going to be greater than yours. And Barkley talked about it, talked about the fact that he realized in that series, and all these guys are delusional, think that they're the best, that, yeah, Jordan was the best player on earth. Barkley had been in the league for a long time, and he said it took that moment to realize that he wasn't the best basketball player in the world. When we all knew he was very good, but he, he was not the best basketball player in the world. You could make an argument he wasn't the best basketball player at his own position. Uh, so I do think that one-on-one mentality with Jordan saying, not just pregame, but during the game in a timeout, talking to Grant Hill saying, oh, I'm going to make his ass work on the other end. He looks at the team game as an individual matchup with the other great players. And, and to your point about all the greats who are there, 
in that East locker room. You had Tim Hardaway, you had Anthony Hardaway. You had Sean Kemp, who was on the Cavs for, yeah, for, that hurt. for, for, like for that. some reason. Um, and, and yet still still an all-star. Grant Hill. Um, and then on the West, when you see people dapping him up afterwards, Gary Payton and the Sonics, who's telling him they're going to see each other in the finals. You had Kevin Garnett, a young Kevin Garnett. You had Jason Kidd still on the Suns and in his prime. And with all of those greats in one place, Jordan's mind was fixated on a 19-year-old. Mm-hmm. That That's the ultimate level of respect. Yeah, that's again, that's my favorite part of the doc is just seeing all those old all-stars. Like, yeah, Glenn Rice with the Hornets and Rick Smiths and the pinstripes. And remembering that there was the other Jason Williams, the Nets Jason Williams, who yeah. made it to his one all-star game. And actually, he wrote a really good book that I, I'd have to reread at some point because at the time, it was one of my favorite books growing up as a kid. It was called Loose Balls. And it was just his tales from the road. And he was just kind of a fascinating guy. Obviously, really unfortunate uh, turn in his life with the, yeah, the the what manslaughter of of the the limousine driver and the cover up. But yeah. that, yeah, it's it was just still weird to see him there. I was like, oh right, and Jason Williams. That's my favorite era of uniforms in any sport. By the way, is it yours? Like seeing all those jerseys. That's just that's to me. That's my childhood. Well, even I, I mean, I loved around that era when there were all-star uniforms that were kind of cool like the 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 time san antonio hosted and there was like a texas theme to the the all-star uniforms those are great but uh but yeah that is a good era in terms of uniforms i I recently said on sports ig the raptors original uniform is the best uniform of all time i may or may not have said that because it was one of the only uniforms i have at my house (laughs) uh but but that is definitely a good era in terms of uniforms yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah, that all-star game footage was really cool. I loved seeing it. Uh, I loved, yeah, it was just, that That to me was just, not, yeah, I saw that and I thought of my childhood. I thought of all my basketball cards. I thought about all my slam magazines and just, idol- like, that's when you just loved so many different players. And I remember I had that Grant Hill jersey and I loved Grant Hill. And yeah, I, I really had an affinity for for Glenn Rice. It's it's weird. I actually, when when we had the all-star game here in Toronto, I, I like being courtside and seeing all the like stars and celebrities. That was cool. You see Steve Nash, you see LeBron James, uh, you saw Kobe. That it was really cool seeing Kobe. I remember standing right next to him as he was, you know, talking to Jason Sudeikis and thinking, wow, this is a real trip. But the moments for me, that all-star weekend that were where I felt truly starstruck was when I would run into Glenn Rice or when I ran into Detlef Schrempf, where I ran into the guys that I idolized as a child and how that just sticks with you. Those were the stars of the weekend to me. And yeah, there was a moment where they brought out Michael Jordan because they were awarding him the All-Star game. They were giving Charlotte the All-Star game the following season. So he had to come out to center court and present him with the All-Star game. And I'm looking around and I'm trying to see where Michael Jordan is. I'm like, oh, where, where's Michael? I want to see Michael Jordan come out. And then he's just he's standing right beside me. He's just standing right beside me. I thought I was going to faint. I had just like weird anxiety where I thought to myself, don't throw up (laughs) weird. Don't throw up in front of Michael Jordan. So yeah, I I really enjoyed seeing all those old all-stars. Well, you should have been in the dock evidently to, to to talk about that because we had Nas in the dock. We had Justin Timberlake in the dock. Basically, if you had any relationship with Jordan, you got an invitation. Can I just say, I don't buy the Timberlake thing at all. He's like, I like mowed lawns. I was like, "Mm, I think you just got the shoes kid. Like, I don't think that, 
Yours was a rags to riches story to get a pair of Jordans. Just I mowed lawns and I did chores. I was like, eh, this, this seems like a lot of holes in this story. I'm just going to say. I just, it just didn't feel genuine to me. Uh, the best part was Timberlake had on the PSG uh, Jordan hat. So he, he made sure the branding was on point yeah. uh, for the interview. I, to be honest, I mean, Timberlake has a relationship with Jordan and with um, the designer. He wore Jordans when he was performing at the Super Bowl. That, although somewhat of a stretch, I suppose, I get. Why not? Like, it's not like he was an artist from Chicago. He's from New York. It's not like he was a big artist necessarily when the Jordans originally came out or something. He's obviously a bigger artist later. I just, I mean, like well, that 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 one I did not get. Just because we're here, I found it fascinating the celebrities they chose to show that went to Jordan's games in the final season when they were going over the What's tickets. wrong with Sinbad? No, what, what's your problem? <laughs> no, Sinbad had a what moment. Houseguest was one of my like early favorite movies where I think I'm one of the only people who like still remembers everything that happened in Houseguest. So I, listen, I'm not going to take shots. I just remember that like, it's like Bette Midler. It, it just felt random. I was like, really? These are the best celebrities? Were these the only ones that were there? I thought we were going to see like a half hour reel of celebrities and it was like 10 and then kind of an awkward moment with Seinfeld where he was in there. It just, Seinfeld seemed a little out of place. Although I did like the joke. There's no, there's no kind of. It was awkward. Like, yeah, <laughs> it was awkward. Phil Jackson was just giving him daggers as yeah. if Seinfeld himself was Jerry Krause. Um, yeah, and, and, and nobody seemed to care that he was in the locker room. It wasn't like everyone was in awe of him. They're like, yeah, no. beat it. We're trying to, trying to play. Yeah, he just didn't seem like a celebrity at all in that moment. Like, he just looked like a guy, other than when Michael said hello to him. But immediately once that was done, Michael was like, I have nothing really else to say. Phil wants you out of here. He's like, yeah, I'll go. And then he makes the play joke and leaves. I was like, I actually felt kind of bad for Jerry Seinfeld. I felt as though he and I in that exact same situation would have acted the exact same level of awkward. Yeah, I was. Uh, I didn't feel bad for him, but I'm not, I'm not really a Seinfeld guy. Speaking of celebrities, uh, this is a celebrity that did not appear in episode five and six, but did um, last weekend. A specific uh, celeb that was interviewed was, let's say, in demand after the airing. Their searches on a specific platform. Do you know the stat? Are you, are you, are you one of the people who searched? No, here's the thing. I, I didn't, uh, but even as you were just setting this up, I was like, yeah, obviously Carmen Electra because she was an absolute 10 out of 10. I couldn't believe how good Carmen Electra looked. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but it, it looked like that documentary, like her and Rodman were five years before. She was amazing. She was, but tell me the stats. Sorry to interrupt you. I just got very excited because she was just like, yes, yeah, she was gorgeous. He did get very excited, which lets me believe that you not only know the stat, but have contributed to it. Uh, her, her searches on a small little website called Pornhub have increased 1.7 million since she appeared in the documentary a week ago. So people want analytics, even though there are no sports. I'm here to do the research for you. There you go. I've never heard of that particular site. Pornhub, was it? I, I've never heard of it. P-Hub for short. P-Hub for short. So I think Jordan is a more complicated figure then we are willing to acknowledge sometimes with history between us and Michael. And when we got to the portion of the documentary where they were going to talk about his gambling and the Jordan rules and the way Jordan has been around his teammates. And I know that it's later in this documentary where we see a little bit more behind the scenes with him and Scott Burrell and, and how he treats him. 
But up until this point, I was kind of curious to see how they were going to handle the gambling and, and what was going to happen. And we're left with, you know, next week going to be about the death of his father and about going to baseball, which I'm curious to see how they'll handle that. But just the gambling in general and the way that it was portrayed in the documentary, that was one of the first times where I just, I felt like Jordan's control was too great and that we were shortchanged a little bit in actually looking at him through uh, a non-biased lens. And I know, of course, we have this documentary because of Michael Jordan. You wouldn't have been able to do this documentary without being able to sit down with Michael Jordan. This wasn't like, you know, the Fab Five where Chris Webber just didn't participate and they made do. You cannot do a definitive documentary or telling of the story of Michael Jordan without having Michael Jordan participate. And quite honestly, I think if Michael didn't participate it would limit a lot of the other people that would. I don't think that Scottie Pippen and Phil Jackson or Dennis Rodman necessarily would all sit down for this thing. But Michael Jordan, and like he can say it wasn't an addiction, but he was consumed by gambling. He gambled all the time. And I just sort of thought they glossed over it. And this is somebody who owed, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions to multiple people for losing on the golf course who... And he said it like kind of quickly where he said, you know, I didn't know who some of these people were when I was associating with them. And then there's really no follow up. And it just quickly got turned into this portrayal of Jordan as a sympathetic figure. And I thought that that was appropriate more for his level of fame, because you see these crowds. And the only thing I could think of with that stuff is like, remember the early warriors where people were lining up to see Steph Curry shoot and, and come into games early, but they weren't lined up around the block. They were waiting outside hotel rooms, but it wasn't like, you know, Steph Curry and these guys are having to fight through crowds and, and be touched. There's one scene in there where Jordan is just going to the tunnel and you forget that fans used to be able to reach down and touch you like guys are rubbing Michael Jordan's head. It's so weird to see that stuff. It's so I feel bad for him when he's talking about people want to be like Mike, but they don't know a, a life of Michael Jordan, which is this level of fame where you cannot go anywhere and you really can only be yourself on the golf course or in your hotel room when there's privacy, but the gambling stuff, they just, they gloss over it really quickly. He minimizes it completely. And then they just turn him into like, well, the media treated him unfairly. Guy went to Atlantic city during a playoff game. He was out and he performed. So he gets to control the narrative, of course. But just to me, that was a major story. And I, I really would have liked it had they gone in depth on that and actually explored that because I do think that's a huge part of Michael Jordan. And I think that's one of the things that, fans still have big question marks about so the gambling aspect of things i'll just say we'll see more of later in the series when sadly jordan's father passes away but the gambling in general it's tough to put into context because right now our feelings as a culture with gambling are entirely different mm -hmm. so much so that the league is in bed with bookmakers and they want to get to the point where you walk in an arena and an app pops up on your phone and you can place live bets from your seat. That's not where the league was certainly back then, but it certainly wasn't where we were as a society. And there's a bunch of things that would have been looked at differently. I mean, you mentioned the, the political aspect of him. Not only did he not go to the White House after they won a championship, he didn't go because he was playing golf with someone who mm -hmm. was cleaning money and they were gambling on on said golf. I, I thought Aldridge's quote really put it into great context when he said, and talking about David Aldridge, the longtime NBA reporter, when he said, Michael Jordan gambling 10,000 is like us gambling 
$10. Like, he's got it. He's good for it. And David Stern relinquishes the fact that, yeah, we looked into it, and we just figured based off of his earnings, it's not something that we were too concerned about. And so there are going to be conspiracy theorists as to how much did the league know, how did they punish him, which, again, will be unpacked further. So it's, it is tough to stop and start the way you watch and have a full evaluation. But, I mean, remember, it was a couple years ago that there were a couple Raptors during a playoff game who were seen in a casino. They were and, just walking the floor. Well, of course they were. Um, but the point was the scandal part of that was not that they were in a casino. It was that they were awake and out and not necessarily sleeping, getting ready to play the game. So it, it is, it's really tough to evaluate in a lens of 2020 when gambling is not a big deal. Uh, certainly Jordan didn't help himself when he decides, okay, fine, I'm just not talking to you media. I'm going to make my dad talk to the media for me. And then, okay, when I do talk, I'm going to talk to my homie Ahmad Rashad during the finals and I'm going to wear sunglasses inside. Like that didn't really help as a character witness for your own self. Take the sunglasses off, my guy. Yeah, I just, like, I, I think the name is James Buhler or Bowler who had the $57,000 check that was released during a criminal trial that wasn't even the worst one, I don't think. The Michael Eskinas book where he owed him $1.2 million. Right. Remember, this is not 2020 $1.2 million. This is a couple decades ago where $1.2 million was worth a lot more. I mean, Scottie Pippen is out here saying, man, I could use $1.2 million right now. Scott Pippen. Yes, yeah, Scott Pippen. You're losing $1.2 in golf. And like, did you ever win a round of golf? Like, what were you betting total that yeah. you owe $1.2 million? So, again, this is a person, Aquinas, who, who mentioned it in that book and, and put out the figure. And, you know, Jordan had settled with multiple people for gambling debts that were, that were great. The only reason I brought up Buhler with the $57,000 one is because, yeah, he was a convicted drug dealer. And that a lot of people that Jordan were, was playing with, there were guys who were, yeah, sharks. There were guys that were connected to, to criminal organizations. And it's just, I think it's greater than just the gambling. It's, you're talking about where gambling is as a society now, right? It's definitely changed. But also, like, yeah, you're looking to have high-stakes gambling on a golf course. You might run into some nefarious figures. And that's what I think was, was glossed over to a certain degree is that, yeah, we don't look at gambling the same way. And, of course, Michael Jordan is right when he says, hey, it's my money, and I wanted to do what I wanted with it. And here's the other part of it. I'm not broke. I still have the means to do this. I enjoy doing this. So leave me alone. I just think it's greater that what an obsession it became. And the fact that it was a story at all, that again, you talk about looking into the psyche of Jordan, that he views it as a slight that people even wanted to talk about it. And that he had convinced his teammates that it was a slight, that it's not viewed as, Hey, Jordan, this is a distraction to the rest of your team that you went to Atlantic city during a playoff game. It's his teammates coming out and saying, we viewed that as an attack. And when you attack one of our guys, you know, we want to prove something. <laughs> You're going, what are you talking about? The media is reporting on a story about the greatest player on the planet, the most famous person on the planet, who's out gambling the night before a playoff game. And during a, a time where there's a whole lot of evidence that he's gambling tons of money, he's losing a ton of money, and he's losing it to, yeah, some pretty shady characters in a lot of cases. So, yeah, the fact that it was just kind of portrayed as this was a media concoction and that this was the media versus Michael Jordan, that's when it really felt like, oh, right, Michael has a lot of control over the story. They, they are leaving things out. They are glossing over things. 
and they are now making him appear as though he was a sympathetic figure for even having to deal with those reports. So we've got some new things for you this NBA season. And no, it's not just Terrence Davis playing so well. We have a newsletter that will break that down and so much more. Our weekly newsletter from NBA editor Stephen Leung. It gives you original content, opinion, analysis. You can't find it anywhere else. And it is delivered directly to you right in your inbox. Sportsnet.ca slash newsletters. Just subscribe and we got you. Let me just go into some rapid fire things that uh, I thought about while watching this doc that maybe we missed. Uh, I love the quote, hot as a cabbage patch doll to describe Jordan's shoe popularity. Uh, It was a nice (laughs) look back in time. I don't really know. I know what a cabbage patch doll is, but I've never owned one. And I, they're like, it's like a moon faced baby, right? Like a baby doll. Do you know what they are? I do. uh, I can't remember if I owned one, but I do know what they are yeah um my wife she kind of was like what did they just say when that line came out uh as well but they they were clearly hot at the time yeah a cabbage patch doll and then there's garbage pale kids and they were like collector cards of some kind in the i guess 80s and, and 90s the jordan shoe stuff is it's been really well told um, I think that this is where David Falk is owed just a ton of credit because, yeah, Michael wanted to wear Converse. It was completely uh, unprecedented at the time. I, I think I already mentioned it to you guys before the show where we were talking about it, how, yeah, this is Jordan ends up getting a deal from Nike where, you know, he's almost making $1 million a year. He's making at a time where that's just like it's completely unprecedented. Guys aren't making shoe money like this. He complete, He's the pioneer in this regard. And I thought they did a really good job showing... The stuff with Spike Lee, uh, the Mars Blackman character that that gets portrayed in the in the commercials. It's an iconic commercial. It's one of the most iconic commercials. But to me, every time I see that shoe, that Jordan one, I just look at it and say that is the perfect looking basketball shoe. And I don't know how much of it is nostalgia, how much of it is with Michael. It's just the idea that it's just that that's the original, that that's the original piece, the logo, the Air Jordan concept, the way they sold it. I just it's. To me, it's it's the perfect shoe. Do you have a Jordan that you prefer? Uh, I mean, the Concords for me um, were were peak Jordan. If I could only have one pair, I suppose they would be up there. Um, even though they don't go with everything, as the ones, the threes as well are very nice. I mean, I just if we're, we're talking about people who were innocent bystanders to this stock. It's certainly anyone who had Adidas stock in the um, late 80s to early 90s because I don't know how you're watching this doc and Converse although it's obviously a mistake I kind of get it you have Isaiah and Dr. J and Magic and Larry and Bernard King for some reason and you're the official shoe of the NBA and you don't have room for Jordan okay I mean what what are you going to do but Adidas like it would be a wrap right now you forget about the Yeezys If, if Nike may not exist if Jordan signs with adidas oh and by the way he wanted to that was his favorite shoe and, and not, not told in the doc but you know a known fact after he gets the offer from nike he goes back to adidas again circles back he's like are you sure you can't match and they're like yeah no not at this time and so 
that's uh that's a tough one to swallow now considering the jordan brand alone forget about nike jordan brand alone does more business than most shoe outfitters do themselves and so yeah i just i can't believe how the course of history would would have been different if jordan ends up going with Adidas. i mean listen part of the reason nike got the deal is because they plan to market him harder than anybody mm-hmm. else and so that certainly played into it but man it's it's still such a crazy crazy swing and miss by our friends at adidas yeah i actually think that that again is a, an issue where jordan has control and jordan has the i want to take shots at people like he still resents adidas and he wants to bring it up because adidas were not his favorite shoe that's not true his favorite shoe were converse he wore converse at university he he wore them at unc he felt comfortable in them he didn't want to change shoes that was the whole thing he kept driving he wanted converse he wanted converse but they just didn't want him. They weren't willing to pay him. And I just thought, yeah, okay, maybe he liked Adidas more than Nike at the time. But the fact that he like threw that, they put that in the documentary, like you blew it, Adidas. I'm like, classic Jordan. Can't ever let anything go. Has to overstate this to a degree and just bury Adidas for being like, aha, see, you didn't do it. I don't pretend to know exactly the preferences of teenage Michael Jordan, but him saying I was Adidas, there's archival footage in the doc of him in some dorm room as a kid mm-hmm. looking at a poster and he's like i like the lakers and i think he said like marcus thompson or something was his favorite player and i like adidas like listing his favorite thing so he mm-hmm. at some point of his life did like adidas whether or not that changed but they, they had him on tape saying it i think he liked adidas it's just it's pretty well documented that he really wanted to be with converse and that he was a guy who wanted to be as much like when he was at UNC as possible, that Converse was the major shoe and that that's what he wore in college and that's what he liked to wear, that's what he felt comfortable in, that he was really worried about changing shoes and that that's part of the reason that there was so much apprehension to go with Nike in the first place is that the guy just did not want to do it and was willing to leave some money on the table and was, again, this is why it goes to Falk, is that Falk really knew that this was the way to convince him to do it, was just the, the huge difference in money and making sure that he was marketed in that way. And it worked out because, yeah, Nike, you're right. Nike is not what it is today without Michael Jordan. It's the best investment they've ever made. It's one of the most beautiful shoe designs, I think, of all time. It's one of the best branding and marketing campaigns ever. And yeah, they just, this is the story of industry, man. There's so many places that get complacent, like Converse did, where you're on the top of the mountain and you don't think you need to do things differently or you don't need to make exceptions for other talent or other ideas because you think what you have is impenetrable and along comes something new that is more flexible, that has a better view of the future and isn't just thinking about what you already have. And boom, you have a situation where, yeah, Converse now compared to Nike is just, it's it's nothing. Like you can't even almost put the two things in the same sentence with one another. They're just on completely different planets. So yeah, it's a it's a brilliant, brilliant job by Nike, it's a brilliant job by Falk, and yeah, ultimately a brilliant decision by by Michael Jordan to go that way. Um, the activism, when they're talking about Michael's famous quote about Republicans buy sneakers too, I'm a little torn on that one because I really, I don't know, uh, I'll ask you how you feel about this too. I don't really care if athletes don't want to wade into political discussions. I don't think it's fair that... You have to be in, if you're in the public eye, that you automatically have to stand for more. And I think Jordan's position of being 
an athlete and saying that that's not what he wanted to do and he didn't put his passion into politics and that he didn't want to speak of something that he didn't know are all very, very fair points. It just seems that this particular race was a pretty easy one for him to wade into, especially considering that, you know, he had family members asking him to support it. I don't know. How did you feel watching that that part of the documentary? I, I really didn't know how to feel afterwards. Yeah, I thought Barack's perspective was great because I mean, yeah, he was. was in politics at the time. He's been a lifelong public servant. He's also from Chicago and was a huge Bulls fan. He, I mean, he also now has a real relationship with Jordan. He gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And he, he basically kind of said, listen, if you're at the level of himself, Jordan, Oprah, you can't win. You're never going to be uh, woke enough or support your community enough. But at the same time, um, as a scrutinized black public figure, um, you, you're never going to be loved by everyone if you take stances on things that are controversial. So you kind of have to find that nexus. And Jordan was pretty clear. Uh, his energy and his focus was playing basketball. It wasn't political. That wasn't something that motivated him. And if you were looking for a role model, um, then maybe there's someone else that you should follow. He was, he was actually pretty clear on it. I do think in terms of the Jordan-LeBron debate, if there are people who side with LeBron as you know their favorite basketball player, I think a lot, by the end, I think a lot of, of the reason why the scales will be tipped in his favor is not necessarily what he does on the court, but it, everything that he does away from the court, and that's why the example of Muhammad Ali is a great one, because any boxing aficionado will tell you that Muhammad Ali is not the greatest heavyweight champion of all time. In fact, you, you can list three, four, or five that are, that are better in his weight class, never mind just boxers, period. But why is he beloved? Why is he thought of as the greatest? Because his impact was so much bigger based off of his platform. And so if Le LeBron were ever to to chase the, the coattails of Jordan in terms of being beloved, it would be off of Jordan's indifference to social causes and, and LeBron fearlessly wading into them. And, and it, it's, in a way, they're products of their society. There, you had lots of activism when it was you know Bill Russell and Jim Brown and times were dire. Then you have this explosion in money in, in the society and sports specifically. And you would have to risk that, that money, that financial wealth, if you took a risk politically, where earlier those guys were fighting for some financial stability for themselves and the people from their communities. Now we're at a point where part of your brand is how social you are, how active you are, what cause you are affiliated with. And so that's how you find difference. And so now you have LeBron where it comes full circle and a big part of his uninterrupted brand is all of the things that he's doing away from basketball. So Jordan actually, as the times have changed, if you pay attention, he has actually become much more political and he is invested, not just his words, but money into many causes. But that quote that Horace Grant, once again, probably leaked, uh, that Republicans buy sneakers too, uh, that's the one thing that we remember because, again, this is a branding exercise and it's a witty line and we've tagged it to him um, based on his actions at the time. Yeah, I think that 
it's it's so unfair that that does get attributed to him that way that it is Jordan's clearly a guy who is extremely witty and very very good off the cuff and I think that comment like that joke which is what it was supposed to be at the time it's a good like you can hear Michael Jordan saying that as a joke right like with that little bit of a bite and the way he's saying it in private and not in front of a microphone but also that we do look at this thing through that lens right of hey um it was very different with Muhammad Ali. It was very different for Bill Russell. It was very, very different for those guys and Jim Brown. And for Michael Jordan, we kind of look at it during a time where, yeah, politics, I think, were a little bit more private and that you didn't need to be forced into action in a lot of cases, like the way that Russell felt compelled to or the way that others have, like Muhammad Ali. And with LeBron James, I think now we do live in a society where having your political beliefs out there are far less taboo that people are kind of trying to ask you to take a stance on everything all the time. It's just, it's more, uh, it's, it's just more about what we do and, and where we live in this social media era where everything is public and everything is on display. And that kind of looking back on it, it seems worse than I think it actually, it, it actually is. I'll just say that it looks like, Oh, well, Jordan didn't do something that was so easy and he could have done it. And it was an obvious place for him to take a stance. I just, I, I do think that era and personality that those things matter here. And I just, I don't view him as a villain for these things. I was just conflicted thinking like, hey, listen, your mom's asking you for something. Help your mom. <laughs> That's all. That was my main thing. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of, of what you said is, is really true. Um, Will Purdue looks like David Wallace from The Office. Thoughts? I have not seen The Office. So You've I never seen The no Office? Thoughts. Oh, no. Someone who's, if you're watching the, if you're watching Last Dance and you saw Will Perdue, tell me that if he doesn't put the David Wallace glasses on, that he looks exactly like David Wallace. Michael, do you watch The Office? Yes, I watch The Office and Breaking Bad, Donovan. I'm very disappointed yeah, in you. Yeah, but does Will Perdue not share a resemblance with David Wallace? Yes, he does. Yes. Just put the glasses on him. <laughs> yes, man. He looks so much like him. I couldn't believe it. I thought that he was going to sing the Suck It song. I really did. I was like, sing Suck It. Sing the Suck It song. Come on, David Wallace. You can do it. Um, yeah. Uh, what else do I have here? Oh, yeah. Um, MJ playing quarters with the security guards. Do you understand the game they're playing? I believe so, yeah. What is the point of the game? Is it to get the quarter closest to the wall? I believe so, yeah. Okay, that's what I assumed. I just, I didn't know. I've never played that game before. I was like, all right, Michael wants to play these guys. Michael! Yeah. Michael, you stuck it, baby! You stuck it! Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> He's, Michael's really not good at the quarters game. He's, they show him losing. But I just, all I could think of was Michael Jordan taking money from these poor security guards had he won. Being like, hey, you guys make nothing. I'm going to take your $20 and walk into the other room. Just awesome Michael Jordan stuff. In fairness, he was giving them odds. Like yeah. they were getting more throws than he was. Sure. Um, which, which I suppose gives them an advantage. Although I don't know if you have that much of a greater advantage to throw quarters because you're a professional athlete. But again, he's a competition-aholic. I, I loved it. I, I, one thing I keep getting from this doc and seeing more and more of Jordan is actually how funny Jordan is. That he can be really mean because he's so clever and he can come up with something that will really dig at you, that he knows how to hurt you, but that he just has a lot of really good lines. Michael just always has something to say. When he's, even when he's like, security, calling for security, get the security guards out there. I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. Uh, one of the dumbest things that has happened over the last, 
I don't even know how long this has been going on now, but just watching the the Suns and watching Charles Barkley, the dumbest thing is how Charles Barkley and Draymond Green keep getting compared to one another as though they are like some type of peers or equals in some way. And don't get me wrong, Draymond is this incredible player. He's an incredible competitor. He uh, is a integral member of what I think is the greatest team who ever played. But confusing him for Charles Barkley has got to be one of the strangest things that has ever happened in professional sports. Like Charles Barkley was so unbelievably better than Draymond Green. It's just I how this is happening just because the two of them are feuding with one another or the idea that Draymond continues to believe that he like impacts winning in some way when we watch Draymond Green with the Warriors this season is just... Has there anything been weirder to you in terms of player comparisons or a debate between two players where the divide has been greater between the two in your life? Well, I mean, I think the comparison is they play the position. They're both undersized. They're virtually the same size. And and one guy was unbelievably better. One guy was averaging 28 points a game some seasons with 15 rebounds. And they're both outspoken. They are the most outspoken basketball players of their time, they may be the most outspoken basketball players ever. That, to your point, is where the comparisons stop because stylistically, Draymond Green is much more like Dennis Rodman than he is Charles Barkley because Charles Barkley was a dominant offensive player and really a you know lackluster, at times indifferent, defensive player where Draymond Green is dominant defensively and he is really someone who nobody guards on the offensive end. Part of the reason is because he plays with other great offensive players, but other part of the reason is because he's not been a consistent three-point shooter all but one season, and he, he doesn't have an array of post moves. So, uh, yeah, stylistically, basketball-wise, the, the comparisons are somewhat there, but but are limited, and Charles is a superior player. But I think it's more their bravado that that I compare more than anything else. Yeah, and I think that's a fair one. It's just that I actually have seen people on the internet pose the question about, like, you know, which one is the greater winner and who has more effect on the team. And I loved this. Uh, I'm going to steal Michael Grange's tweet here today, but he says, Barkley, age 29, MVP, lost in the finals, put up 26, 12, and 6 with a true shooting percentage of 59.6 and a win shares over 48 of 242. Barkley on his bad team in his prime, the 91-92-76ers, again, to compare him to Draymond, he was 23-11-4 with a true shooting of 61.2 and a win shares over 48 of 205 and played nearly 3,000 minutes. Uh, Draymond Green, age 29 season, 8-6-6 with a true shooting percentage of 48.9. Win shares over 48.44. It's just like the two guys are just very non-comparable when it comes to the impact that they can have as a team's best player. I think Draymond Green is amazing. I just rewatched the entire Raptors finals run uh, about a month and a half ago. And the thing that really just stuck out to me is how many amazing things Draymond Green does that you just, you forget about it sometimes, but it is very odd to me that, yeah, that there's been these talks about like who would help you win more. If you dropped Charles Barkley on his prime into the Golden State Warriors, uh, yeah, they're winning the same amount of championships. They're winning even more games. Again, I think Draymond's real value is on the defensive end and offensively as, as well, a playmaking, playmaker He's a great passer. And, yeah. and a facilitator. And so do the Warriors, one of the best teams, if not the best team of all time. Now, come on, they're the best team of all time. It's just a matter of which Warriors team. Okay. I mean, there's, there's going to be people who listen to this who's, 
would say that they they wouldn't beat the 92 Bulls or the 97, 98 Bulls. It's just a math um, equation. Sure. Like, they'd be able to shoot so many more threes. Unless the, the only argument I think you can make is if it's like the 92 Bulls, but they get, you know, they come up in this league at this time and Jordan knows that three-point shooting matters. But if we're just talking about, like, time machine for time machine, yeah, the Warriors are just, they're going to shoot the lights out on anybody. Like, they would, it, it just, yeah. <laughs> Kevin Durant is is going to score a lot of points. He's going to score a lot, a lot, a lot of points. Yeah, so the, he's on a team that's, in your estimation, the best of all time, and yet yes. I think we'd all agree they wouldn't win without him being on the team. Um, and Charles Barkley was on uh, a bunch of good teams that never won, but he was the best player on his team for virtually his entire career until he got to Houston. So, No, um, I think the Warriors would win without Draymond Green. I think that they would have they would have the same amount of championships as they as maybe not maybe not same amount but they certainly once KD it depends on how you feel about his the helping the acquisition of Kevin Durant or what that was but if you're telling me that the Warriors just get you know a wins above replacement player for Draymond Green and they have everyone else on that team uh from the last two championships with Kevin Durant Steph Curry and Klay Thompson yeah I think that they win every, and Andre Iguodala I think they they win every time I mean I wasn't gonna disagree they had uh yeah average above average player at the position david lee and they were like yeah peace draymond needs to play more he's better their their best unit the hampton five unit or the death lineup before that uh was with him playing at the five and being able to guard people much bigger than him but also being able to cause offensive nightmares because no one near his size could guard him in the perimeter because it, it, that's not where they're used to being defensively so it just caused a headache uh not to mention the fact that if he got a rebound he's automatically a point guard and you have uh, a, a fast break so I, I don't i don't think it's that easy where you could just take him off the team and they win now is it a, a bigger dent if you're taking off steph curry or maybe clay thompson or kevin durant sure but i still think he's a huge reason as to why they are as impossible to match up with as they were yeah i mean he was the fourth best player on to me the greatest team of all time he's an invaluable he's a valuable valuable player but yeah i just I, I don't think it's fair comparing him to my to, to charles barkley because charles barkley is the best player in an nba finals was losing to michael jordan and that somehow draymond's a better winner because he played with those guys um before we go what are you what are you watching right now outside of again you're you're up on netflix's stock um, I'm guessing you're watching, what's it called? Too Hot to Handle? Is that the name of the show? If I had to guess, I'm saying that's what you're watching right now. Am I right? I have seen it. It's not great. I'm not, I love reality <laughs> TV and it's not, uh, I, I'll probably get through it because I'm not a quitter, but it's not, uh, it's not great. It's, it's no love is blind. Let's, let's not get, uh, let's not get out of control. I got to tell you, Donovan, if Donovan tells me that a reality show is no good, that's that's crippling like that's like you know uh, that's like dave portnoy gives you a bad pizza review like you're in trouble like it's going to take some time for your business to recover like you're going to have to figure out something else i i like too hot for handle they're just basically thrilled that donovan's giving this review now and not like right as it came out thank goodness for them you didn't get advanced copies and give this review earlier or else they never would have gotten off the tarmac yeah it's just the premise of let's watch influencers that are good looking not hook up like i mean yeah. i don't know that's, that's, that's not 
what are we doing? Why? <laughs> why? why? Like so, yeah. It, it, lot, production value, great. Yeah. Cinematography, great. Concept, not not for it. Yeah. All right. Um. Yeah, I watched the new season of Brooklyn Nine Nine. I think it's spectacular. I'm really happy that they made Captain Holt back to being the captain. When they had Holt the first couple episodes as not the captain. I've never felt more like I was going to quit on a show I love. I just, I couldn't handle it. It was so weird. Thank goodness they put Holt back in with the reins. Uh, season overall, very strong. I think it's the last one. Are you, are you a Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan? I am not. You are not. Man, what's the like most popular show you've, like, you've seen, do you think, that's not reality television? Like, have you seen The Wire? Have you seen Sopranos? Like, are you like those? I feel like you have some holes. Uh, I mean, listen, I just, I, I don't believe in groupthink. I don't just follow the crowd on my shows. <laughs> succession would be oh, uh, probably succession. up there. Ozarks is, yeah. is uh, something that I'm late to, but now uh, furiously catching up. Um, but yeah, no, I have not seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Don't say it like that. Don't like say it Brooklyn like that, man. Nine-Nine. It's a great show. It's really, really good. Critically acclaimed. <laughs> that was just... Rude. That was rude to the nine nine. Again, very few shows get canceled and then get put back on the air just immediately because of fan support just blowing up. Um, okay, that's a wrap for this week. Uh, yeah, please subscribe. Please share it. We are now on Spotify. So for those of you that like to listen to your pods on Spotify, please follow it. Please also uh, follow Sports on Pause. I saw you guys had Scott Boris on today. I'm really looking forward to listening to what he has to say. I had him on Good Show. He, I, I think our interviews were very different. I was asking him for a Scott Boris hat. I'm guessing that your interview was a little bit more in-depth and uh, in, insightful. Uh, yeah, Scott Boris uh, quite as kept, has a pharmacology degree as well as a law degree. Uh, Did so not know. He was, yeah, he was breaking down, um, you know, some literal science on, uh, on why he thinks uh, Major League Baseball should be a leader and basically start spring training right now. Yeah. Um, I'm not surprised that's his take. <laughs> really not. Uh, anyways, I'll be listening to it later. The podcast is killing it. Subscribe to that. Subscribe to Sports on Pause. Subscribe to all of our podcasts. There's really not a bad one in the mix at Sportsnet. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.